All right. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 15. Genesis 15, starting with verse 1, and we're only going to look at the first three words tonight. No. <laughs> we'll start with the first three words. After these things. After the what things? Well, obviously the things of chapter 14, where we saw how four powerful kings from the north joined forces. They um, lived in what is today modern uh, Iraq, Iran, and Turkey. They were led by a king. One of the four was uh, name was Ketelaomer. And they joined forces and attacked five strong kings from the south. This would be the area uh, southeast of the um, Dead Sea. Uh, their main guy was the king of Sodom. And so they, the four kings from the north, north attacked the five kings from the south and defeated them. And in the process, they took a whole bunch of hostages, a lot of the spoil. And one of the hostages happened to have been Abram's uh, nephew Lot. So when Uncle Abe gets wind of it, he uh, gathers together his own militia made up of the servants. He's got a trained militia he keeps, 318 of his own servants. And then he was joined by two or three other guys in the area, and they went after these, these four kings. Now, obviously, they were outnumbered, outgunned. God, no doubt, was with them and gave them the victory. But they came upon them at night, split up into two groups, attacked them at night, and they couldn't, dark, couldn't tell how many uh, were attacking them. Anyways, God discomfited them, gave them a spirit of, of, of fear, no doubt, and they all split, and they, they were defeated. So Abram gathers up the spoil, the hostages, his nephew Lot, and comes back down to the area of Sodom. And that was the background of this, you know, and after these things, okay? So now Abe is back home. And, and you know how it is that after you've done something a little crazy, uh, you know, at the time the adrenaline is kicked in and you don't really think about it, you know, your personal safety. Uh, but the adrenaline rushes over and... Uh, He's thinking about what he had done and the consequences that may have on him and his family in the very near future. And so he's afraid. He begins to fear. Uh, he doesn't live in a walled city like many people did back then. He lives in a tent out in the open on the plain. He knows he's a sitting duck. If these kings decide to come back uh, together and attack him, he's a sitting duck. He knows that. And, and I just want to, to say this as we look at this. Often, right after God uses us powerfully or gives us a great victory, be careful. That's when our guard is usually down, and the devil is very patient. He waits for those moments. And often, it's when we've just experienced a great victory that the devil will then come and attack. A mountaintop experience, be careful. In the valley, there's always a demonic person waiting for you to attack you. All right, And the idea is that we have to be careful because the devil will try to steal our joy, our victory, our, our faith even. I think of Elijah on top of Mount Carmel. Remember in the Old Testament there how he uh, faced off against the 450, actually 850 prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth. And he was the only prophet that stood for God and had this big showdown on Mount Carmel. And uh, eventually it led to God answering by fire and proving that Yahweh was God, and the gods of the you know, Ashtoreth and, and Baal, they were not God. So uh, Elijah had all the people uh, take these priests and all, take them down to the river and kill them. Mountaintop victory, literally. Okay, uh, But right after that, 
Jezebel gets word that all of her prophets have been killed. And so she sends word to Elijah, may God do so to me and more also if I don't make your life like one of theirs by this time tomorrow. Tough guy, 850 people he comes against, wins. One lady runs for his life down to the wilderness and has a little cave experience, you know, where he's hiding out in a cave. And you can read the whole story yourself. But the point is that, you know, be careful after God gives you a great victory. Don't let your guard down. You know, don't let your, it could be as, as simple as being a witness at work. All of a sudden something happens, you stand up and you shine for the Lord. Just be on guard, okay? The devil usually likes to use those times afterwards to get us, all right? So first of all, Abram's afraid for his personal safety and the safety of his family. Secondly, and let's be honest, he seems to be having some second thoughts about giving up all that wealth that the king of Sodom wanted to give him for going ahead and defeating his enemies and recapturing the hostages, the hostages and all the wealth that was taken in that battle. We turn back to Genesis 14, verse 21, as Abram is coming back from this battle victorious. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. So just give me the hostages and all the wealth you can keep. It must have been a lot of money, right? But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, uh, and that I will take not take anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. So three other guys joined Abram, and he says, look, this is my conviction. I don't want to take anything from you, lest anyone say you made me rich. I'm just trusting in the Lord to take care of us. But the other guys, I'm not going to impose my convictions on them. You give them their reward and so on. And so with this in mind, and that is a backdrop. The Lord then appears to Abram in a vision and says, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. In other words, don't be afraid, Abram. I am your protector and I am your provider. Now, this is the first place in the Bible where the phrase, Do not be afraid, or as the King James translates it, Fear not, appears. First place in the Bible. It's a pretty important statement, by the way, okay? God telling us not to fear or using other combinations of words that mean the same thing like do not be afraid, do not fear, be not afraid, and all of that combinations. Uh, God admonishing us not to be afraid appears roughly 115 times in the Bible. Now listen, fear is a part of the self-preservation mechanism that God has wired into all human beings. And when activated, fear triggers in us what's called the fight-or-flight response to a dangerous situation, which helps us to survive. God has wired that into us. And of course, whatever God has created for good, Satan can and will use for evil. So God created in us the ability to be afraid because there are situations that we need to be afraid of, and they help us to survive. But see, what God intended for good, Satan has used for evil. What God intended to save life, Satan has used to destroy life. Many people have been destroyed through fear. Fear of all kinds of different things. Fear causes people to, to take alcohol. causes people to take drugs. It even causes some people to commit suicide, all in the name of alleviating fear. Now, at very least for the Christian, it can rob us of our peace, our faith, 
our joy, even our relationship with God. If we don't trust that he's bigger than the problem we're fearing, we can turn away from him. As I said, there are things, guys, that we should fear, things that will cause physical harm. I mean, you know, uh, we'll say an area that's completely fenced in with big signs all over the place saying danger or beware. Fear that, okay? Fear that. Because that is a place that can really harm you physically. Uh, In the Bible, God says there are things that we are to be afraid of. God says we are to be afraid of sin because it robs us of our fellowship with God. And you don't want to be out of fellowship with God in these evil days. You want to be walking with God. You want to be connected to God and in fellowship with God. Because if the devil can peel you away from God, you are a lone lamb in a world of wolves. You don't want that, okay? God says there are things you should be afraid of. We're to fear the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom, right? The Bible says we are, people in general, are to fear coming judgment. Now, once we get saved, perfect love casts out fear. We're not, we don't worry about judgment anymore. We've passed from death to life. But there are things that God says we are to fear. And then many things the devil wants us to fear that God tells us we need never fear. I'll give you some examples. We need never fear that God will forsake us for his children. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We need never fear that God won't provide for us. Jesus said to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he promised us that all the things that we need to live, food, shelter, clothing, God will make sure they are provided for us. We need never fear that there will ever come a time when we need God's strength and help, and he won't be there for us. One of my favorite verses is Isaiah 41, verse 10, where God says, Fear not, for I am what? with you. Don't be afraid. I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right arm. The idea is that God is saying, look, I promise to always be there for you. Whatever you need me, you need never fear that I won't be there in a critical moment. I'm always with you and I'm always ready to strengthen and help you, deliver you whatever you need. And finally, and probably most importantly, because this is eternal, We need never fear that once we've received Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that we, listen, because we fail and fall in our walk, will ever be thrown out of the family of God and be lost. Remember what Jesus said in John 6, 37? He said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and all that come to me I will by no means cast out, throw out of the family. Remember what um, Paul said in Romans chapter 8, that tremendous chapter on eternal security starts off with no condemnation ends with no separation and to wrap it up all he's been saying in romans 8 he says i am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from god's love now he's talking about the love of god which is in christ which he's talking about people who are saved now okay he says i'm convinced nothing will ever separate us from god's love in christ which means Nothing will ever take us out of Christ. Nothing will ever cause us to be lost is the idea. He said, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a promise from God. It's pretty ironclad, by the way, because he said, I read the out of the NLT, but in the New King James, he said, nor any other created thing 
shall separate us from the Lord. See, people say, well, yeah, I know that, but I can do it. Are you a created thing? If you're a created thing, not even you can separate yourself from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not that you should want to try, but I'm just saying, okay? So this is the first place where the phrase, do not be afraid or fear not, appears in Scripture. But it's also, or excuse me, also, this is the first place that the phrase, the word of the Lord came to, appears. Now, those are two very important phrases. And I bring this up to say this. There is something in hermeneutics, which is the science of Bible interpretation. There is a law called the law of first mention. Anytime a major concept or a very important phrase is used for the first time in Scripture, it's significant. It's significant. Take note of it. The first time the word worship appears in Scripture, Genesis 22, verse 5. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. Very important. It defines worship for the rest of the Bible. The first time the word marriage appears in the Bible, uh, Genesis chapter 2. Study that passage. That becomes the defining passage for all the understanding of marriage throughout the Bible. Okay? It's interesting that the first time these two important phrases appear in Scripture, they are used to comfort a man. Listen to comfort a man about God's ability to protect and provide for him and his family. Now, again, that's a problem that we all have, especially the men. I heard an interesting uh, statistic years ago. They surveyed a whole bunch of men to find out what they were most afraid of in life. Number one answer, that they wouldn't be able to provide for their families. Men feel a great responsibility to provide. We're providers. That's who God has made us. He's, He's wired it into our DNA. So it doesn't surprise me that that would be a number one concern for men uh, that they wouldn't be able to provide for their families. And Satan capitalizes on that quite a bit. It's interesting that the first time the words fear not or do not be afraid coupled with the word of the Lord came to is like God is saying, look, these are important concepts. Listen, you must know right up front that I am going to provide for you. I'm going to protect you. Those are things that... God is promising us. Anyway, he goes on in verse 1 to say, I am your shield and your exceedingly great what? Reward. Guys, to have God as our reward means that we share in all that he has and all that he is. Two very important concepts. I am your exceeding great reward. What is so valuable about our relationship with God? Well, just about everything, right? But the two things that come out, I think, more than anything else. For God is our reward, our exceeding great reward. What does that mean? It means that we share in all that he has and all that he is. I'll give you two scriptures. You don't have to turn to one. Romans eight seventeen, Paul says, we are children of God. And since we are children of God, it means that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. In another place, Paul said that everything God has created, well, belongs to him. But because we're his kids, we inherit too. That's great wealth, okay? Great wealth. That he made all things. All things belong to us because we're his kids. We are heirs with Jesus Christ. So all that he has belongs to us, but also all that he is. And I will have you turn to this one, Ephesians 3. In Ephesians 3, Paul is offering up a great desire. In fact, it's a prayer that he has been praying for the Ephesian Christians, and no doubt for all the, all the Christians he ministers to, ministered to. Okay, And it's a great prayer that he's been offering up to God. 
And I'll just pick it up in verse 18 of Ephesians 3. He said that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That was Paul's prayer, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. All that God is. Now I realize that God's infinite, I'm very limited. But the idea is that whatever I can contain of God, that it would be all that God is. I mean, you know, I mean, if you are using example of maybe a cheesecake, okay, just went to a place where they serve cheesecake not long ago. So I'm thinking about cheesecake. Uh, and they have some of these big cheesecakes that they, they make for like uh, office parties and things, okay? You don't have to eat the whole cheesecake to be filled with the goodness of the cheesecake. You can have a little piece of it, okay? It's not the whole thing, but the piece that you have is all cheesecake. It's not limited. It's all cheesecake. Just the, the amount is smaller than what you can handle. Same is true with the Christian life. We're not saying that we're going to be able to be filled with all of God, but all that we can be filled with is God. We want all of what God is, all of who He is, I should say. And of course, that is in regard to His Spirit, filling us with His love, His peace, His joy, His long-suffering, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, called the fruit of the Spirit, the character of God, and the holiness of God, and so on. All right, so I am your exceeding great reward, verse 2, but Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. What is he talking about? Well, in that culture, if a man had no children, then the oldest servant born in his house became his heir. And Abram is basically saying, Lord, what good is it? All the material things you bless me with. You've given me no child of my own to pass them down to I mean, not that he didn't care about Eliezer but he was just saying that look everything goes to this servant born in my house I don't have any children you haven't given me any children as of this point now you have to understand back in chapter 13 verse 16 God had promised Abram that he would have so many descendants they would be as numerous as the dust of the earth but as of now as of chapter 15 he and Sarai were still childless in fact, God first promised Abram children back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, when he was 75 years old. Now he's 83 years old, and God still hasn't fulfilled his promise to give Abram a son, an heir. Now listen, guys, at this point, just a casual reading of the story, we might be prone to think that Abram was beginning to doubt God's promise to him, that God was going to give him a son. And through this son, he would have so many descendants, they would be innumerable. We might be prone to read this and go, well, you know, it sounds like he's doubting. It sounds like he's beginning to waver in the promise that God gave to him. Well, we might think that if we read casually, but Paul tells us differently. In fact, turn to Romans chapter 4, because Paul puts that to rest. No, he's not doubting the promise of God. Listen to how Paul puts it. In Romans 4, verse 20, he said, He, meaning Abraham, did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was also able to perform. So either we have a contradiction in Scripture, which 
we'll never be. Or we're just under, not understanding the passage properly. Okay, I believe in verses 2 and 3, what seems like a doubt is just a sincere desire to understand God's promise in a deeper way. Look, a person can ask God a question in one of two ways. In a defiant, accusatory way. God, why did you allow this? As they shake their fist in God's face. Or in a humble in sincere way that simply says, Lord, I don't understand why you allowed this to happen, but I want to understand your ways in a deeper way. So please help me to understand. Now, even though Abram doesn't use those exact words, I believe uh, what he, his question basically or his statement was the latter. He wasn't really challenging God or accusing God of lying or breaking his promise to him. He was just asking God in a very sincere way, I believe for some deeper insight into his plans for his life, for Abram's life. I mean, obviously God had not yet come through in his promise. I believe Abram, his faith was in God was enough where he was strong enough where he realized, look, God cannot lie. God has promised me this. I'm just not understanding why it's taking so long. That's not doubting God's promise. It's just, Lord, why are you taking so long to fulfill this promise to me? Now, look, God has always got his reasons. For everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. We have to understand that. God always comes through in his promises, but his timing is always according to his plans. We have to trust that. And how did God handle Abram's question? Well, God responded to Abram's question by repeating his promise to him once again. I find God often does that. When you're, we're kind of doubting God or we're wondering what's going on, and we ask God, Lord, what's happening here? What does God usually do? He directs us back to Scripture. To scripture. And, and, and that's kind of what he did here. He, he directed Abram. He repeated the promise he had made to Abram once again. Verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one, Eliezer, shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven, and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Why did God repeat his promise to Abram again? Because God wanted Abram to know that nothing, listen, nothing he had promised him had changed. The promise was still in force. One author, Jim Boyce, said, and I quote, Has God ever repeated a promise to you? I'm sure he has. He taught you something in the past, but you got into a muddle, and God came and taught the lesson again. You were reading the Bible, and you came upon a certain verse, and God said, Don't you remember what I promised? I'm the same God. I haven't changed my mind. God repeated his promise so that you would grow by repetition, end quote. And that's how it works, all right? We often forget the promises that God has made to us, promises in the Word. God has to keep reminding us. So that we understand, look, God has uh, promised to take care of this. Now, in verse 5, we read how God brought Abram outside. Okay, he was saying, Lord, I don't have an heir. You've blessed me with all these material things, but I don't have any children to leave them to. And God says, look, Eliezer is not going to be your heir. You're going to have a child from your own body. He will be your heir. God takes him outside and said, look now towards what? Heaven. Look now towards heaven. You know, guys, it's interesting how in Scripture God is always trying to get us to look up. He's always trying to get us to look up. 
In fact, in chapter 13, verse 14, God said to Abram, to Abram, lift up your eyes now and look. Remember the psalmist said in Psalm 3, verse 3, he said, but you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I love that. Because it implies that our heads can hang down at times. We can get so caught up in a circumstance or a problem that, you know, we're kind of walking through life with our head hanging down. And I just imagine the Lord taking his hand and kind of coming in front of us, taking us by the chin, lifting our heads so that our eyes meet his. Do you forget about me? Do you think I've abandoned you? Do you think I'm not with you in this situation? God is always trying to get us to look up. Why? Two things. To remember him and his great power in light of whatever circumstance we're going through, as we just said. And number two, he wants us to look up because he doesn't want us to be consumed or focused on this life. He wants us to keep our eyes on the eternal so that our perspective of life is always proper. Get your eyes off of the temporal, onto the eternal. Somebody has said the psychologist says, look in. The opportunist says, look around. The optimist says, look ahead. The pessimist says, look out. But God says, look up. That's a good way to live your life. Keep looking up. As Paul said in Colossians 3.2, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. All right, once again, verse 5, then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to Abram, so shall your descendants be. Now, as we've already pointed out, the word descendants, plural, is actually seed, singular in the Hebrew. And it has a kind of a dual application. That's why some of the translations translated descendants, plural, King James, seed, singular. Uh, it's because it kind of has a, a dual uh, application. Yes, God is telling Abram that he would eventually have many descendants, which is why God renamed him Abraham at one point, which means father of a multitude. But the deeper interpretation, guys, is that God was promising Abram that Messiah would come from him, one particular seed, singular. And through the Messiah, many would become descendants of Abram and children of God through faith. You remember how we looked at what Paul said in Galatians 3, verse 16? If anyone doubts whether or not descendants is the right translation, Paul settles it. In Galatians 3.16, he's talking about this very passage. He says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, And to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. Paul is telling us in Galatians 3, and in Romans 4, by the way, that through Jesus, Abraham's descendants would go way beyond the Jewish people. Way beyond the Jewish people. That all who believed in Jesus, the Messiah of all mankind, uh, Genesis 12, verse 3, the Messiah of all mankind, would be the spiritual children of Abraham and the family of God made up of people from all over the world. Remember we said, Abraham, in you that is in your seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. How? Because through Messiah, who had come through Abraham, who would be the Savior of all mankind, as the gospel was spread throughout the entire world, people from all over the world, from every family, tribe, kindred, tongue, nation, 
would get saved and would become the family of God on the earth and also spiritual descendants of Abram. So a lot going on. And it brings us to verse 6. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Now, guys, this verse is without a doubt one of the greatest verses in the Bible. Why? Because it lays for us the foundation for the greatest doctrine in the Christian faith, justification by faith apart from works. I mean, I don't have to tell you how critical that doctrine is. Martin Luther said it was the foundational doctrine of the church, which without it, the church wouldn't survive a single hour. Christianity is built on justification by faith, apart from our works. This becomes the, the doctrinal verse, the foundational verse of this all-important doctrine. In fact, this verse is quoted three times in the New Testament in full. Romans 4.3, Galatians 3.6, and James 2.23. All quote Genesis 15, verse 6. In fact, Romans chapter 4 is an entire exposition on Genesis 15, verse 6. So Paul not only quotes from Genesis 15, 6, all of Romans 4 becomes an exposition on that one verse. That's how important it is. In fact, in Romans 4, uh, in fact, why don't you turn there? Because I just want to hang out there for a few minutes. In Romans 4, verse 3, Paul says, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Okay, so he just quoted Genesis 15, verse 6. The word accounted in Romans 4, verse 3, is the Greek word legizomai. Legizomai. The same word is used 11 times in Romans chapter 4. It's translated counted in verse 4. It's translated accounted in verses 9 and 10 and then verse 22. And it's translated imputed in Romans 4 verses 6, 8, 11, 23, and verse 24. It's a banking term. That means to put to one's account. To put to one's account. Now, this becomes the crux of Paul's argument in Romans 4, not to mention the foundation upon which our salvation is built. That the righteousness that comes from God, listen, is imputed by faith not earned. That is the foundation for Christianity right there. In Romans 4, verse 4, Paul says, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as Debt. And the idea is simple. When a man works, he earns a salary, right? Or a woman. And at the end of the week, after he or she has worked the entire week, their employer owes them a debt. They have worked for him or her all week. Now he or she owes them a week's wage, right? They've earned that. The employer at the end of the week doesn't hand him or her his check or her check and say, here's a gift. That would be a bad thing to do. We wouldn't appreciate that. After you've worked hard all week, your boss hands you a check and says, here's a gift. You don't need a gift. It's no gift. I earned that. <laughs> However, if you got hurt in the job and didn't have any kind of workman's comp or didn't get paid for being off of work, and your boss showed up a few weeks later with a check for the entire time you were off and handed it to you, that would be a gift. That would be very generous. And Paul is just basically making that argument in Romans chapter 4. And he's talking about Abraham. He's saying, look, Abraham did not work for his salvation. He simply believed the promise of God. Now, the Hebrew word translated believe means to say amen. 
So going back to um, Genesis 15, verse 6, it says, when Abraham believed God, well, the Hebrew word means to say amen. God gave a promise. Abraham responded with amen, which means truly. It was a pronouncement of faith, okay? And God declared him righteous. Listen to me. Abram wasn't declared righteous because he kept the law. The law would not be given for another 430 years. Abram was not declared righteous because he underwent the rite of circumcision. That wouldn't happen for another 14 years. It just says God promised, Abram believed, God said, saved. That's it. However, it does beg the question, what exactly did Abram believe that caused God to declare him righteous? Now, the immediate context would be God's promise to be a shield and great reward. Was that it? Was that what he believed that caused God to declare him righteous? Maybe it was God's promise that he would have an heir coming from his own body, verse 4. Or maybe it was the promise that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the heavens, verse 5. Or maybe it goes back farther. Maybe it was attached to the promise God gave to him and his descendants about this land he would give to them, Genesis 12, verses 1 to 7. I mean, what was it that caused God to declare him righteous? Well, in Romans chapter 4, which is the exposition of Genesis 15, 6, let's turn there. I mean, guys, this is a pretty important verse in Genesis 15, 6. It's quoted three times in the New Testament, one whole chapter given to explain it. I mean, this is something that we really need to understand. What was it that Abram believed that caused God to declare him righteous? Well, in Romans 4, starting in verse 16, you can read the whole chapter on your own, because Paul's making the argument that salvation is not by works, it's by faith, using Abraham as the example. He said in verse 16, Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, in other words, not just to the Jewish people, but all people who put their faith in Christ, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who, contrary to hope, in hope, believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, so they were dead reproductively by this time. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Verse 22, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. So what has Paul just gotten done saying? Well, it seems that Paul is telling us that the belief that God could bring life from death course in this context reproductively but the idea that god could bring life from death or the idea that abraham believed in resurrection is what god looked at and allowed then god to, to declare abram as righteous a belief in the power of god to raise the dead okay but just a belief generically that God can raise the dead is all that's required for a person to be saved? I mean, didn't Paul say in Romans 10, verse 9, 
If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So that it seems there is only one resurrection that we can put our faith in that will save us, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then how does that work with Abram? I mean, he didn't know Jesus, or did he? What do you mean? Well, remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 8, 56? He said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. What in the world is he talking about? Well, turn to Galatians 3. There's only faith in one person that can save us. I don't care if you believe God can raise the dead. That won't save you. What saved Abraham? What did he believe? Well, he obviously believed in resurrection, but that's not enough. Jesus said, he knew of me. He rejoiced to see my day, was glad when he saw it. Well, what does that mean? Well, in Galatians 3, starting in verse 5, we read, Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. And the Scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached, listen, the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed, so then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. God preached the gospel to Abraham in the Old Testament. How and when did God preach the gospel to Abraham? Well, some believe it was when God brought him outside in verse 5, Genesis 15, verse 5. And, it's, and God says, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you were able to number them. There are those who say that God wasn't actually telling Abraham to literally try to count the stars in the heavens. That would be hard. Okay. What he was actually saying was, look up and put the stars in order. Well, what do you mean? Well, in other words, God was telling him to read the order of the constellations, for they tell the story of redemption. Again, what are you talking about? Well, it's what is called the Maserath. Okay, the, we've talked about this. Many believe it was through the Maserath, which are constellations uh, that were named and ordered in a way that they preached the gospel. Some have even called the Maserath the gospel and the stars. Remember what David said in Psalm, uh, is it Psalm 8 or 19? I forget. But he said, the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. And guys, listen to me. The greatest way God is glorified is through the work of redemption, not the work of creation. Creation is pretty spectacular, but they're the work of his fingers. Remember? When I, when I consider the work of your fingers, the universe that you have made, that you're mindful of somebody like me is beyond my comprehension. There's only one chapter, I think it was 31 verses, Genesis 1, devoted to the creation. Do you realize, I can't remember how many chapters, pretty much the rest of the Bible is devoted to the story of redemption. When it came to redemption, God, it says, rolled up his sleeves. Creation, that was easy. Speak the universe into existence with the word, no problem. The work of redemption, much harder. Because God couldn't just speak the word and take sin away. 
he had to become one of us to die in our place. And it seems that the psalmist was saying the heavens declare the glory of God. It could be. I'm not trying to sell it to you. I'm just saying it's possible. That what he was referring to was the gospel and the stars. How that God named these constellations and ordered them in a certain way. Virgo, uh, Leo, and so, to spell out the story of redemption. And it could be that when God took Abram outside and showed him these constellations, that God used these to preach to Abram the gospel. And I believe it was at that time. I don't think we give Abram enough credit. I don't, I don't think we understand how much he really knew. But I believe it was at that time that Abram realized what God meant when he said he would, when God promised them that he would have so many descendants they wouldn't be able to be numbered, and that how that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed, I think God opened Abram's eyes by showing him the gospel and the stars, by showing him that a redeemer would eventually come. He talked about the seed, so shall your seed be, Genesis 15, verse 6. In Abram's mind, I wonder if he connected it to the seed of the woman in Genesis 3, verse 15. How that one day God was going to send a redeemer, the seed of the woman who would come and crush the serpent's head and, and would bring salvation to mankind, restore them. Paradise lost would be paradise regained through this redeemer. And how that God was probably saying to Abram at that time, look up, I want you to see the good news in the stars. I know what's going on in the earth. I know what sin has done. But I'm telling you, Abram, I'm sending a redeemer. He's going to come from your own loins. He's going to be one of your descendants. And through that redeemer and faith in him, people from all over the world are going to be saved, in a sense become your descendants by faith. And my kids, Abram, you're going to have so many descendants, they're not going to be able to be numbered. And through you, and what I'm going to do through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Wow. That's quite a revelation. Now, if you'd like to know more about this, get the fifth study in Genesis, because we talked about this more in detail, the Maseroth and Gospel and the Stars. But, guys, I just want to end it here tonight. Because I wanted to spend our time focusing on this verse. It's so important. Next week, we'll pick it up. And just visit it briefly again, and then we'll move on, finish chapter 15. But um, very important verse. Lays the foundation for, really, the entire Christian faith. Really, what's what sets Christianity apart from every other religion on the face of the earth, even though we like to say Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. That's true. But as we've already said, every religion on the face of the earth is based on what you do for God to earn heaven, or whatever, nirvana, or whatever you your belief system is only christianity is built on the idea or the doctrine of what god has done for us he came down died for, you realize how many pagan religions people had to die to appease the gods in christianity god died to save us that made christianity radical radical still to this day that we serve a god who loved us so much he didn't just sit up in heaven feeling sorry for us. He climbed into our skin. That's what the Greek word for compassion really means, to climb into somebody's skin, to, to sit where they sit, to feel what they're feeling, to be uh, in the same position they find themselves in. Jesus Christ, the Word of God, who was eternal, 
is eternal. At one point became flesh and dwelt among us. He climbed into our skin so that he could die in our place. He didn't just feel sympathy, he had empathy. He did something about our predicament. And we thank him for that because without the shedding of his blood, there could be no remission of sin, no eternal life. Our sins could never be paid for. And so we'll continue the next week in Genesis 15. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your incredible word. And especially the truth that we have studied right here in Genesis 15, verse 6. Lord, we thank you. You're a God who loves us so much. You did something for us to help us, to save us. You came down. All the other religions try to work their way up into heaven. But no, you came down to where we had fallen. And through your blood, you picked us up. You said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men and women to myself. We thank you, Lord, for your grace. I ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.